You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with you. We are joined by Martin Edwards, Crime Writers Association's Diamond Dagger winner, current president of the Detection Club, leading historian in the world of crime fiction. And we speak to him today both as that historian and as author of Blackstone Fell, which is our next and final novel for 2022. Martin, welcome to the show. Well, uh, thanks very much. Great to be back. Today's discussion will be mostly spoiler-free, but we will go all the way into depth on Blackstone Fell at the end. There is a warning in this episode, an audio warning uh, when that's going to happen. So make sure you're paying attention so you don't accidentally walk into the answers. Before we dive into Blackstone Fell's murky bog, we wanted to pick your brain on Trent's last case, which is the novel we're talking about today. It's a cornerstone for the golden age of detective fiction, credited by many as the first novel of the golden age, Herds. So Bentley supposedly wrote Trent's last case as a response to the lacking humanity of many contemporary detective leads. Um, it's strange that many of the things Bentley sought to critique, like the infallibility of the, de- of the detective, remain staples of the era that he supposedly ushered in. What bits of Trent's last case do you think landed the honour of being known as the first? <laughs> well, uh, of course, the first is always a very tricky thing, isn't it? Because there's always going to be someone who finds something earlier. But but I, I do think that that Trent's last case was a, was a milestone in the evolution of crime fiction, and as you say, it was in many ways written as a reaction. He talks in his memoir, Those Days, about um, the fact that he, he was a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. He enjoyed the stories. But the, the idea of the omniscient detective began to irritate him. Because, of course, we, we know in our lives, don't we, that, that there can be a number of different causes for any particular effect. The idea that there's always one uh, one single cause for that effect that you see or that clue that you discover is uh, is rather a tricky one. And so Bentley, I think, set out to satirise and debunk that that type of writing, particularly that type of writing in the hands of people who weren't as skilled uh, uh, stylistically as Conan Doyle. And he came up with the idea of the uh, uh, the great detective Philip. Trent, although he originally called him Gasket, who uh, who comes up with a brilliant solution, only for it to be proved wrong right at the end. And so that was the concept, and it was a country house mystery. Trent is humanised, and he he is portrayed in in a degree of depth that was uncommon in detective fiction at the time. So that was a bit of a development in itself. Uh, but uh, but then he he does solve the mystery, and there's the the twist solution or double twist right at the end when it turns out he was wrong. And people loved the book, but they loved it particularly, I think, for the twists. So Agatha Christie, as well as Dorothy L. Sayers, was a big fan of Trent's last last case and references it more than once. And I think what what a lot of people took away was not the the satire or the ability of the great detective, but the idea of the one final turn of the screw that is such a feature of the books, not only of Christie, but the, the multiple solution type uh, novels of the likes of Anthony Barclay and Ellery Queen and, and Christiana Brand. So this this idea of, uh, of, of uh, the, the great act of slate of hand, the, the magical trick by which the truth is revealed. And then the truth turns out to be something else, was something that really resonated for a very long time and still does. Well, as you say, both Christiane and Sayers count themselves as fans of, of Trent's last case. 
Christy adorning many reprints with with her own quote that is one of the three greatest detective novels of all time. And Say is referencing the novel directly in Whose Body. Why do you think that the book landed so well with with writers? And do you find yourself returning to it? Well, well, dealing with your second question first, yes, yes, I do. Howard yeah. Gossett's well written, uh, and it, and it's an agreeable story to to read. Uh, and the the film versions have been a number, but but the one in the early fifties was uh, was was certainly okay, better better than many films of who done it. Perhaps a low bar, but but it's but it's true, I think. So so I, I I do go back to it in terms of how it how it lands. I I think that timing is so important in writing as in everything else, and and the timing was right. Yes, you did have the war coming along, but uh, immediately after the book was published. So the book is published in 1930, and it doesn't have any immediate successes. But it, 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 it almost the, the 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 ideas of it kind of seem to kind of marinate in the in the heads of younger uh, would be writers over the next few years. So by the time you get to 1920, seven years later, Christie. Uh, produces her first novel, Mysterious Affair at Styles, and that takes on this idea of the final twist and the country house mystery. It's, uh, it's a different type of story because the detective in her case is infallible, more or less, Hercule Poirot. So she doesn't take on the satiric uh, edge of Trent's last case to the same extent. Although there is satire in the portrayal of, of Poirot, the refugee, the Belgian refugee, but but it's an affectionate satire. And he is the great detective in a way that Trent isn't. But but I think you can see that she's taking something from Trent's last case, the the idea of the uh, uh, partly the setting, but but more particularly the the plot development and the twists, and and then making it her own. Well, yeah, I mean, in crime fiction, there is a tendency towards those parodies and that satire idea and the authorly games that people play with themselves kind of being the new ground for what becomes the next generation of tropes, like Trent's Last Case, like Hercule Poirot, like the Decagon House Murders, like Caves of Steel, and so on. What do you think makes this, like, satire approach so effective in driving progress in crime fiction? Well, I, I, I think sat- satire is very appealing, and and I think that with detective fiction in particular, I think we have to accept that murder in reality is absolutely terrible and awful. And, and so there's always a question about treating uh, the ultimate crime as entertainment, as, as detective writers do. And there are different ways of addressing that question. As, and you can also ignore it if, if, if you're so inclined, but, 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 but I, I don't care to. But, but I think that, that if you're addressing uh, the idea of murder being detected and a puzzle being solved. There's a lot of scope for poking fun at the detective process because it can be quite a serious thing. And the satire relieves some of the tension, some of the darkness, perhaps, as well. And so I think that, if not exactly cathartic, I think it gives the the reader some sort of relief that uh, uh, that that everything is not uh, everything is not absolutely dark and terrible, and and I think that the satiric edge that you find in in many many detective stories and and including of course private eye novels uh, 
the more hard-boiled stuff. I, I think that part of the attraction of that, both for writers and readers, is that it it gives you a break from the the business of, of, of murder and the business of murder detection. Well, yeah, I, I guess I wanted to insert at this point a, a shout out to Life of Crime, which is your latest enormous uh, historical effort, because one of the stories I remember reading you talk about, uh, Philip Trent and E.C. Bentley, was how Trent's own case had this celebratory dinner for when it came out 20 years down the line. And unlike many of his peers, Bentley didn't quite manage to produce the kind of momentous sequel or franchise that we expect in the space. What do you think made Trent work so well in Trent's last case that he wasn't quite able to recapture in Trent's own? Well, that's a very interesting question, which I've puzzled over for a long time. He he wrote a number of short stories about Trent, uh, both shortly after the book was published and, and, and quite a bit later. And some of those stories are very good. The Genuine Tabard is, is an example. Sweet Shot is also pretty good. Um, and he, he finally wrote a, a thriller called uh, Elephant's Work, which is about amnesia, which is definitely one to forget. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> but uh, but, but, uh, yeah. uh, but uh, Trent's own case, he was, he was talked into it by his friend, Herbert Warner Allen, who was uh, a wine merchant of some distinction, but but also an occasional crime writer. And, and Warner Allen was uh, very friendly with Bentley and he encouraged him. And it was a collaborative work. And I suspect that Warner Allen came up with most of the plot and Bentley did most, if not all, of the writing. But, but who, who can be sure about that? But that, that's my guess. But but what I really think is, is that Bentley was a journalist who's talent didn't particularly lie in writing novels he wrote one absolute classic and you know 110 years later we're, we're talking about it uh which is which is pretty remarkable uh when, when you think about it so it seems odd and unfair to say that he wasn't an actual novelist but but i i tend to think that's the case he, he was a journalist who had one great idea and executed it brilliantly with uh, massive consequences and, and, and great influence. But I don't think that writing novels came to him in the way that it came to the likes of Christie or Barclay or Austin Freeman before, before uh, Bentley published his book. Uh, they, they were novelists in a way that he wasn't. He was, he, he, it wouldn't be fair to say he was a one-trick pony because because he was he was more than that. But uh, but that single trick was was really by far his greatest achievement. You mentioned that Bentley was a journalist, and one thing that you uh, you say in the Golden Age of Murder is how he came up with the story for Trent's last case, walking uh, to his office on Fleet Street, which I suppose is a good moment to switch over to your own latest mystery, Blackstone Fell, <laughs> wherein journalist Nell Fagan is on a crusade to uncover the many overlapping conundrums at the titular town. What led you to Nell Fagan as the foothold for Blackstone Fell? Well, I've, I've been interested in the idea of female crime reporters working in the 1930s. And in the golden age of murder, I talk about a real-life example called Phyllis Davis, who was uh, a well-known character wrote for the Daily Mail in particular in the 1930s. And she was, uh, she, she was a, a, a well-known, rather interesting character. And I thought it would be interesting to write a book around uh, an individual like that. And so that's really where Nell 
came from. Now, now uh, uh, it has to be said, experiences uh, uh, setbacks in, in, in the book really right from the start. And she doesn't, spoiler alert, she doesn't make it to the end of the story. So, so there's no question of her becoming a continuing character as the story unfolded in my mind. But I, I did really enjoy writing about now. And I've been very interested that a number of readers, one or two reviewers, have said they were very sorry that, that she didn't make it to the end of the book. And uh, that makes me think, well, maybe maybe there's scope for another uh, a character, different from Nell, but uh, in that vein and some future story. We um we criticize a lot of detectives on this show, but for being, uh, let's say, overbearing, overqualified, critical, and frankly, far too efficient at their jobs. Um, Rachel Savonake seems to fit the the bill broadly, but the scale of the stakes and the the violence in the novel fully justifies everything that she does and everything that she is um, in the course of events. How does the death of Nell Fagan constitute the final straw for Rachel to bring her full strength to bear? Well, a uh, very interesting question, actually. Rachel, um, I, I think for some readers, is is a difficult character uh, to to get used to and and, and to uh, warm to as a protagonist. And I've, I've always had in mind that over the course of time and over a number of books, we'd see bit by bit uh, more of Rachel, Rachel's true character. She, she guards her privacy uh, zealously for reasons that uh, are indicated in Gallo's Court, the first book. And she, she has this strong belief in justice, but, but rather like Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot uh, and, and others uh, in, in that vein. She has her own idea of justice. It doesn't necessarily conform with, with the uh, conventional uh, law and order concept of uh, justice as applied by the legal system. So she's in that tradition. And when uh, Nell runs into trouble, she's having been intrigued by the uh, mysteries that Nell has told her about. There's a locked room mystery or a locked gatehouse mystery. And also there's a mysterious sequence of deaths connected with a sanatorium at Blackstone Fell. These uh, puzzles have attracted Rachel's interest. But when uh, uh, Nell's body is discovered, and this is, this is uh, a bit more than halfway through the book, she really has that final motivation, not just to find out what has happened, but as she begins to understand Nell's true role in the story, to try to achieve some form of justice for Nell and those that she was close to. And so that is a real driving force that, that gives her strength and gives her a drive. She's a very determined character and, and she, she is highly motivated to taking her investigation right to the limit, uh, almost whatever the cost. And, and that, that uh, I, I, I do think, is, isn't always an easy uh, sell for a writer to, to offer to readers, but, but it appeals to me in the, in, in the context of this character because, because she fascinates me. 
which is the, the, the first requirement. And, and I hope that my fascination spills over and, and, uh, and the readers will embrace it. Well, yeah, I mean, in many ways, Nell Fagan and Rachel Savinick are kind of opposite sides of the same coin as well. One thing that really stood out to me is the way that so often Rachel is described as physically beautiful because her internal self is so inscrutable to people, whereas so often uh, you very distinctly shy away from physical so much as environmental descriptors of Nell. Is that kind of framing device something that was like really apparent to you in writing or was that something that you kind of realized had come more naturally out of the process? I, I think I, I think in that case, it, it, it really evolved as, as the book develops because typically I will start with an idea of a character and and it, it will often even with the minor characters it will be quite a quite a, a, a detailed uh, idea it won't just be simple two dimensional thing but as you write as you explore those characters as you think about them more as you soak yourself in their lives and and this as i say does apply to uh, some of the characters who don't don't figure in the story to a great extent as well as the major characters you you get a, a a better sense of them, just as we do in, in life when we meet somebody for the first time, we, we might like them or dislike them, but as we get to know them better, we see different sides of their personality. The same is true, I think, with writing a character. The more you write, the more you explore, the more you see them in action, and the action is, is important, I think. How do they respond to particular situations? The more you understand them better, and and that understanding isn't necessarily there when when you first uh, 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 start tapping on the keyboard. It, it's something that that grows as as you go along. Even if you thought about that character before you did start writing, it, it, it is an evolutionary process. Almost always, I, I, I would say. This sort of discovery of the situation evolving is something that is like really key to Blackstoneville as we arrive in the town and we discover, ah, Nell's there to investigate this murder, which may also be involved with another murder, which is another murder and another murder, and then Nell's dead. And it goes for like four, five, six, maybe more murders. Our locked room is a history lesson. Our detective changes partway through the story. We grapple directly with mysticism. S.S. Van Dyne would be deservedly suffering conniptions. Do you write these subversions as like a response of sorts to the tropes of the genre, or is that just where you find your stories leading you after all you've done in the genre so far? It, 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 yes, you, you're right. It, it is in some respects a response. I'm taking some of these tropes, which, which I'm, I'm very, very fond of and attracted to, by the way, and, and trying where possible to do something a bit different with them. So in, in Blackstone Fell, there's a whole host of classic melodramatic uh, uh, elements. So you've got the, the deadly waters, you've got the deadly uh, uh, marsh, you've, you've got the sanatorium, you've, you've got the mysterious tower, uh, all, uh, the, the strange pub, all that kind of thing. All, all these pretty melodramatic elements. And Writing a story, as you say, the body count is, is not insubstantial. So writing a storyline with, with quite a lot of melodramatic stuff going on. But at the same time, uh, with that, trying to create cr characters, as I mentioned, who, who grow and develop and you, you can start to believe it, sign, sign up to, even if you don't care for them. 
necessarily. And, and to use those tropes in a way that casts light firstly on the characters, but also on the society that they were living in and possibly under the surface presenting a picture of a society in a way that had I been writing in the 1930s wouldn't have been possible in quite the same way because we we write differently today that's 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 inevitable yeah every generation writes in its in its own way it's not possible for somebody uh today to write in precisely the same manner uh, that people did in the 1930s, unless it's a pure pastiche. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with pastiche, but I'm trying to go beyond that uh, by taking these tropes but doing something different with them in in a 21st century way, by and large, but uh, but trying in that way to appeal not only to the nostalgia element, the people who love the golden age stories as I do, but also people who like the uh, good story that tells you something about character and uh, place and 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 uh, and the world we live in. Speaking of nostalgia for the golden age, uh, the clue finder makes its return, uh, Martin. Just like when we last spoke in Mortmain Hall, I understand there's been a, a stylistic shift from its previous appearance. What things did you feel worked in Mortmain's Clue Finder and what things did you want to change about it for Blackstone Fell? Well, the the books in the series, e- e- each of them is written in a, in a different way. The differences may be larger or, or smaller, but, but each is, is distinct. So Gallows Court is a thriller and it never crossed my mind to include a Clue Finder in, in that story. Mortmain Hall was very much a detective story where part of the puzzle was to figure out what, what is the puzzle I'm trying to solve it, if I'm trying to solve it as a reader, because it's not clear. The, that's part of the mystery. And so it seemed to me ideal, that particular novel, having finally pulled all the strands together at the end to say to the reader, well, you, you might not always have, have, have realised it or appreciated it. Or even been interested in it, but but the clues were there all the way along. If if if, but I, I was hoping to point you in different directions so you wouldn't notice them. So that was the idea of the clue finder in Mortmain Hall. With Blackstone Fell, it's different because although it's a complex story, it is uh, a bit more of a conventional detective story than Mortmain Hall, which I, th- I think is an outlier in, in the spectrum of, of detective novels in the way that it's, it's structured and written. Uh, Blackstone Fell, as I say, majors on these uh, 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 classic melodramatic tropes in a way that Mortmain Hall doesn't do to the same extent. And Therefore, the clues work in a slightly different way. They're more conventional. They're pointing towards the uh, the solution of the locked room mystery, the locked gatehouse mystery, and the motivation of the culprit and the uh, things that connect the disparate elements in the story. So the clue finders are necessarily rather different because the it's doing a different job because the story is written in a different way. And the same that I've just delivered uh, this week, Ooh. the manuscript of the new book, uh, Sepulchre Street, uh, 
which again has a clue finder, but that is different again because Sepulchre Street is a marriage of the thriller and the detective story. So if you like, there are fewer clues because part of it is a is a an exciting thriller. At least I hope it's exciting. We'll- <laughs> if there's anyone I trust with that statement, it's Martin Edwards. Let's be clear. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, so, certainly, I'm 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 happy with it. Uh, so uh, so so that's that's at least a good start. So so the clue finder in Sepulchre Street. I, I, I did actually waver uh, as to whether I would have a clue finder in it. Uh, because I, I, I think it wouldn't be worth doing if it were a pure gimmick. But on reflection, when I came to look at the story as a whole, and you can only, of course, create a clue find once you finish the book, or once it, it's in a, if not a final state, pretty close to final, so you know what you've got in terms of material. Once I came to look at it, I thought, well, there is more of the detective element in the story than, than I had in mind when I started writing it because initially was uh, was a concept that was much more of a thriller and a almost a chase story with uh, uh, poor old Jacob Flint being the uh, person who's being chased uh, but but it didn't evolve in quite that way so the detective element became more important as I was writing and so it became more of a true marriage of these different types of storyline. Alrighty, let us now jump into spoilers on Blackstone Fell. So fair warning, we're going to get all the way into the weeds, all the way into the answers. Take a couple of seconds, close, pause, whatever it is you need to do. Speaking of the clue finder, one thing I really liked in Blackstone Fell was the way the language in this clue finder obfuscated the complex game of identities that you played. I suppose to lead into the next line of questioning, do you anticipate some readers getting a bit too eager and jumping ahead to it? Is that why it's all so vaguely written in this one? Uh, uh, that's exactly right. You have deduced the uh, the explanation to that little mystery. Yes, because, and of course it is it is always possible, he said being generous, that, that, that you, you can accidentally open a book uh, very close to the end. And uh, so, so I think if, if that were to happen, <laughs> A shame it would be a shame if inadvertently you'd find out things you really don't want to know so so there is that element of lack of clarity so that if you do stumble onto it by mistake it, it doesn't doesn't ruin it for you and that that is something that you find in in daily king's clue finders it's something that i've 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 taken from from his example well i found it very very fun actually that the clue finders singled out peggy as the murderer uh, when we've got four, maybe five, maybe six and a whole killers. Um, was that just an artifact of the clue finder masking the book's secrets? Or wh- why do you think that Peggy deserves the definite article before murderer? Well, that is a really interesting question. And I, I, I shall tell you the honest truth, which is that was the driver for the plot all the way in my mind. My starting point was this this mystery, the Peggy strand of the story, if you like. So Peggy doesn't feature in the story extensively, but in my mind, she was the key person. And it was thinking about that idea, the idea of the relationship with with the writer, the the child, and so on, that real and, and the swindle in the past that that really was the fulcrum. Uh, of of the entire plot, so that was where it all began. Uh, 
and everything else came came from that beginning. So in my mind, Peggy is is a fundamental character, and Peggy's Peggy's personality is is key to the story or, or that part of the story. There are as, as we've said, there are several several elements to the to the story, but but that in my mind was the driver and that is the reason why she's presented in that way in the clue finder and of course the book uh ends with with peggy's fate at, at the end of the story and i i wanted that to be the the finale to it because everything really has been leading up to to that moment when she she wanders out into the into the marsh and uh, of course a lot has gone on before you get to that point uh, and and I've, I've taken the the reader down a whole host of uh, of byways uh, but but that was really the the crux of the story as mm. far as I was concerned both both in terms of the initial conception and also in in terms of the way it felt when I came to the end of it what's well, the the emotional ending, right? Like you, you say that Peggy is not very present in the story and that's true. And you know, the character of Peggy, but in my mind, she's very much an extension of the character of Nell Fagan. I half expected her to continue on as Rachel's Nell into the next book, you know, before we see her, her end, you know, I've been kind of hyping up to flex the, uh, suspect breakdown scene yes. all the way through this entire process as we've been doing these, these episodes for the show. And in my mind, you know, I was saying the seance scene is fantastic. It's silly and over the top and I love it, but really the ending for Peggy and, and her, you know, wandering off after Nell in a sense, like that's how it felt to me, that emotional, you know, note, that we that we finish on really is why I love the ending to this book because it manages to both have its cake at the séance and eat it too when it comes to Peggy's emotional ending. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. <laughs> well, thanks. Well, well, I'm, I'm I'm thrilled you say that because that's exactly the response I was hoping for because because you you've absolutely hit the nail on the head because the the séance and and by the way the the idea of having the the denouement as the séance only occurred to me when I was well into the book. It, it was it was not there uh, for a long time. I wasn't quite sure how to resolve that part of the story. And then, then it suddenly, struck, of course, yeah, it's got to be at the sale. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense in, in, uh, in all kinds of ways. And so once I had that idea, I was very, very happy about that. But as you say, that is... That's the part of the story dealing with one facet of the ideas, the, the eugenics and so on, the, the effect on the community uh, in Blackstone Fell of what's been going on. But given that for me the driver was this, this personal emotional story that Peggy was central to, it exactly made sense to having had my cake to to eat it by by having that scene between Rachel and Peggy. When when I what 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 I thought was a lot of readers will think well that the story's over. This is just the coda as, as they, they say goodbye or, or whatever. And and then there are these revelations in in that scene, and then then Peggy meets her her fate. So so that was an idea that that 
was very important to me in in writing the the book and it it seemed to me to be entirely complementary to the sale and scene but it but in many ways more important because as i've mentioned that was where the story idea came from in the first place so in a sense uh the uh storyline involving the sanatorium is is a subplot it it's a huge part of the story but but the key story is uh peggy's quest or nell's quest for some sort of justice uh and and and, and working out what has happened to the uh, to the man who uh who destroyed her son. Yeah, well, I think one of the most fascinating things in the novel is, of course, as you say there, that, like, the biggest pieces of the novel are subplots, and we end the novel with four, arguably five, arguably six murderers, which is something that, on the one hand, part of me is like, ah, yes, Martin Edwards trying to up the difficulty of the genre uh, as, as though that was the thing we needed to do. But on the other hand is also this like brilliant thing where it makes the story feel so natural that all of these people who have struggled for similar reasons in their lives have all ended up in this like circumstance that has attracted them all. Was there a level of you trying to just keep upping the the mystery side of the novel or did it all come out of that kind of character focus that we've just been talking about with Peggy? It, it was largely out of the... The, the character focus because because the, in in terms of trying to drill down into how I how I set about writing I began with that idea then I wanted the subplot and then the idea of the sanatorium and everything associated with it uh, came to me by by degrees and then I saw what would happen to now and I saw that and I didn't see this on day one, but I saw that Nell would not survive the book, that Nell had to be a victim, that, that it, it was apparent to me that she couldn't survive, because I, I, I did enjoy writing Nell very much, and I, there was a big part of me that, that didn't want her to, to go uh, before the book was, was over. But um, having, having approached the book in that way, it it meant that I, I suddenly had on my or not suddenly but but eventually had on my hands a pretty complicated plot, and whilst I don't try to up the level of difficulty or complexity just for the sake of it, given that I'm trying to explore uh, this this uh, tension between the uh, the melodrama and the unlikelihood and plausibility of the golden age stories with the way that people are and the way that people were in the 1930s and the way that life was in the 1930s. Trying to encompass that in a story that keeps me interested and engaged from page one to the last page. And that, that sense of personal engagement is very, very important to me as a writer. It does mean that there has to be a lot going on. The drawback of that is that there is this element of melodrama or unlikelihood in parts of the story, and that's been true in in all of the Rachel stories, much more so than is the case of my contemporary 
mystery. But that's part of the appeal of going back in time and, and delving into the Golden Age style, the Golden Age period. So it, it's not obfuscation for the sake of it, but it, it's taking the idea of the detective story as a game and, and trying to find new new twists to the game. Yeah, true and originality is, is incredibly difficult, as I say, I think more than once in the life of crime. So, so it's not necessarily uh, true originality I'm striving for. It's trying to do something original with, with elements that are f- often quite familiar. I like to think that the, uh, all the little coincidences that pop up in your novels are just Rachel uh, manipulating events. I think, <laughs> honestly, she'd make a great villain with the amount of conspiring and the army of servants she happens to wield. I'm just saying. I mean, that's how Rachel has to go, right? Rachel has to be the villain <laughs> of her last novel. Let's become a crime lord. Go for it. Well, she she is a she has a dark side, extremely ruthless, and and again that that side of her is evidence in in the new book Sepulchre Street, um, and that again is part of the appeal of writing Rachel. She's not a she's certainly not a goody two shoes. She's a, she's a dangerous person to know, and she's a very very dangerous person to get on the wrong side of. And and of course, characters like that are great fun to write. I'm excited to see how how dark her character can get. I suppose as we go forward. <laughs> Now, on a lighter topic, um, I tend to think... Potentially. <laughs> potentially. We'll see how we go. Um, I, I tend to think of word games in murder mysteries as kind of puzzles that only a fraction of a novel's reader base will truly engage with, you know, like a bonus puzzle almost. Um, yeah. But you've managed to to tie word games into so many aspects of the story, big and small, um, Nemesis and, and Nathan Hart and the Baconian cipher. Um, how in the game of high stakes murder do you find the time to percolate these more obfuscated, less mechanical puzzles? Well, I, I, I do agree with you that, that your, your basic point, I think, is absolutely right, that the, the vast majority of readers will only engage with, with these technical puzzles to a limited extent. And so, and, and, and that, that's, that's true of me. If, 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 if I'm reading a book and it gets too difficult, you know, I might, I might move on. Uh, so so I, I do understand that. You can't, you can't push the reader too hard and you can't bore the reader with it. So, so instead, what I try to do is, uh, and, and also because, of course, there's a limit to my ability to come up with very, very intricate word, word puzzles. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've not necessarily got, got that. Uh, mind to the extent that uh, John Dixon Carl had, but uh, I, I have small or smallish examples which I I will plant in where where I th- I think it it works and it makes sense, and where it goes with the grain of the story, or if it goes against the grain of the story, it goes against the grain of the story for for a good reason. Um, I think that's equally that's equally legitimate. So, so in this book, the word games, the the cipher, came to me sometime after I figured out the mechanics of the locked room mystery puzzle, and the uh, cipher, the the the, the uh, book cipher, so to speak, that came to me at a very late stage when I was writing the story. So they're not necessarily there at the beginning. They're things that, as I start 
thinking about what I'm writing and maybe go out for a walk and, and muse on what I've written the day before or something like that or what I'm about to write, sometimes an, an idea will come to me thinking, yeah, that, that, that would work. And, and what happens in practice is that sometimes you come up with an idea and you test it and you think, well, well actually that, that wouldn't work for whatever reason, either it's too banal or it's too complicated or it doesn't fit in in the right way. And, and then I think you just have to discard it. So, and, and I do that sometimes. And so the, the puzzles that, that make the cut and get into the story are those that seem to me to, to fit in some way and to add to the reader's experience. Because, of course, when, when you're reading the Rachel books, there's, there's a lot happening. You're, you're being, uh, uh, you know, there aren't, there aren't many uh, longures, I, I like to think. So, so there's a lot going on. There's a lot to take in. And it's a question of trying to vary in a in a sensible way the the impact of the different scenes so that the reader gets variety if it's all on one note it, it it's not going to be a good experience so there has to be this variety and occasionally these little cerebral things give give a bit of light relief and i think that's 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 welcome so so the the question for me is is whether the puzzles fit in into the overall uh, context of that scene or that part of the story. And, and if they do, they, they stay in. And if they don't, they, they have to go. Well, yeah. Martin, I have had such a wonderful time with Blackstone Fell, and it was such a delight to like really get into the weeds this time. You know, Mortmain Hall last time, I got to pick your brain a little bit, but I'm so, so happy that we got to get all the way into it this time. So thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Well, it's been great fun. And, and yeah, your analysis uh, is fascinating as a writer and, and I'm, I'm really grateful for the time and trouble you've taken and, and obviously for your reaction to the book which is what it's all about from the writer's point of view thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast for this exclusive extended chat with martin edwards about ec bentley's trent's last case the life of crime and blackstone fell be sure to go to the podcast page so you can find yourself links to most of those or search them online wherever you get your books it's all well worth checking out and we will see you in the new year after review season. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour on 2SER 107.3.